0: Let's read from God's Word now, uh, from Matthew chapter 20. We'll begin reading in verse number 17, which is where we studied last week. We studied this first paragraph of this final section of Matthew chapter 20. And I believe that they are all connected, so let's read verse 17 down through the end of the chapter together. You can follow along silently as I, as I read for us out loud. These are the words of God again to us, beginning of verse number 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside and on the way he said to them, see, we are going to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priest and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one on your right hand and one on your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left hand is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, that is, the ten disciples, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as they went out of Jericho. A great crowd followed him. And behold there were two blind men. Sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by. They cried out Lord have mercy on us. Son of David. And The crowd rebuked them. Telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more. Lord have mercy on us. Son of David. And stopping Jesus called them. And said. What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. These are the words of God for our consideration this morning. And we will study together verse 20 down through verse number 34 in the conclusion of Matthew chapter 20. We have a rich blessing at our home, especially during these months of the year. We have a swimming pool at our house. Our swimming pool is well used and stewarded wisely by my wife and daughters throughout the summer months. And at some points, I get the opportunity to be in that pool as well. I'm much less um, well versed in the pool lifestyle that they live on a daily basis. But I do get to get in. And when I get in, I always want it to be a specially fun and exciting time, which includes at this point in this summer, setting my daughter, Chrissa, who's three, up on the side of the pool and and asking her and, and, and telling her to jump to daddy. She's been in swim lessons and she can go under the water now and blow bubbles and she can do minimal swimming activities, thanks to Macy Torres, who's highlighted in our bulletin today. But this summer, unlike last summer, where with her floaties on, she would willingly jump off of the side of the swimming pool to me and I would let her go in the water and then kind of somewhat catch her and bring her back. This summer, for some reason, we've run into a roadblock with jumping off of the side of the pool into the pool. And so I place her up there and I look at her in the face and she looks at her dad and I I tell her, jump to daddy. And immediately as I say the words, and even as I'm getting her up to the side, which now obviously she's aware what this is going to entail, thoughts begin to flood into her mind about why this is a very poor idea. She begins to hear other voices that are speaking directly to this situation and telling her, this is not wise. Sis, do not jump off the side of the pool. The man standing there who looks like he hasn't been in the pool all summer is not worthy of your trust. He's telling you something that you probably should not believe. So mixed with her limited ability to swim, her God-given self-preserving fear of drowning... And the example that she has not received from having older siblings jumping into the pool, we face a very serious roadblock. Basically, I'm giving her one set of instructions and everything in her little world, her three-year-old world, is telling her, I don't think I should do this. And so in that crisis moment, my daughter is faced with the reality of do I trust dad that when he says jump to me, he actually is going to do something to make sure that I'm preserved. He's going to catch me or he's going to only let me go under for a moment, which may be why she's kind of scared because I've done that before. I don't know, but whatever dad says he's going to actually do. And when he says you can jump to daddy, I can believe that. And I can believe that to the point where it overrides all of the normal things that I'm thinking in my three-year-old existence. Now, let me guarantee you, sis has not had any of those thoughts run through her mind. She has not processed this. She does not stand there and reason through it. In fact, as I try to reason it through for her, listen, daddy is trustworthy. Daddy can be believed. Daddy has enough muscle mass to catch you, though not much more. Daddy is daddy is good to you. Daddy's not going to let you fall. She is not reasoning because the voice that speaks so much more to her are the various layers of fear that are built into her system. She has a set of information, a set of facts that she's working on, and she has my voice and my words to her as a second set of facts. And at this point, because we haven't had time to work on this, because I will be victorious, her set of facts are winning over my set of facts. Right. This morning, when we come to Matthew chapter 20, we're faced with the exact same scenario at a much, much grander scale. In fact, throughout Matthew chapter 20, we're faced with this same dilemma of what defines normal for us. So throughout this portion, throughout really beginning back in chapter 18 and going all the way through chapter 20, we've been with the Lord in the final days of school before the journey to Jerusalem. He has been working with the disciples. He's been showing them what it means to be his follower. And he's been speaking it to them as well, instructing them, teaching them to think appropriately about his kingdom and about their role within his kingdom. And today we'll run headlong into their dilemma, their competing set of information the the culture in which they live the facts which they operate with are going to run headlong into the words of jesus and in in particular this paradox of the kingdom that we found at the end of chapter 19 and that was explained through the parable at the first part of chapter 20 chapter 19 verse 30 says but many who are first will be last and the last first and verse 16 of chapter 20 so the last will be first and the first last The disciples have struggled to understand how this applies, what this looks like, what this means. And with their set of facts and the way that they have they have operated within their culture, and within their life, they now are faced and confronted with what the kingdom way truly means to their existence. Jesus defines and redefines for them normal. So just like Carissa, who's on the side of the pool, operating with a very convincing set of facts that are very real to her. And I'm confronting that with a very limited set of facts, which do have truth in them. We're faced with the dilemma that that exists for us even today. Will we or will we not define what is normal Christianity, what is normal kingdom living by what the king says or by the culture in which we live and the way it shapes us, conforming us to its mold. Okay. So the big idea for this morning as we study this final section of Matthew chapter 20 is really quite simple, and I trust as we examine the paragraphs that this will become proven to you. The big idea is simply this, the umbrella theme over this section, kingdom greatness is measured in service, not status. Kingdom greatness is measured in service, not status. So, wisdom from heaven is gleaned through hearing and watching Jesus as he ministers to the disciples and to the multitudes. And we are faced this morning with the wisdom from heaven confronting the wisdom of this age. And really, though we're thousands of years away from. The men who first heard these words from Jesus and even from the first disciples who received the record of Matthew's gospel, we are still faced with the same cultural dilemma, the same contrast between our age and the mind of Christ given to us through the words of Matthew's record. We're going to consider three principles that make it clear that kingdom greatness is measured by service and not by status. Another way to say this would be measured by responsibility, not the privilege. So kingdom greatness is measured by service, not status, by the responsibility, not the privileges. And three principles will come from these texts. I believe they'll they'll, they'll come right off the pages that will confirm for you, I trust, confirm for us together this morning, that this is in fact the normal way in which we ought to think about greatness. Greatness. This is the normal way in which we ought to interact with the thought of any greatness in a human sense. So, what does it mean to be a great Christian? What does it mean to be a great Christ follower? What does it mean to be a great kingdom citizen? What is greatness within his kingdom? Well, here are the three principles Kingdom great greatness, first of all, is not status or position, kingdom greatness is not status. Secondly, Kingdom greatest Greatness is slavery. So, not status, but is slavery or service. And finally, Kingdom Greatness is applicable. It actually plays out in the life of individuals. This is not mere theory that we'll examine this morning. It is... It is reality for us as the people of Christ. So let's look at these three principles, which I trust will confirm for us. that kingdom greatness must be in our lives, in our church life, in our individual lives. Greatness within the the realm of following Christ must be measured by service and not by status. So let's look then at that first principle in the first part of Of our reading this morning, verses number 20 down through verse number 23, we find kingdom greatness is not status. Now, this is a shocking story. It still is shocking to us as we hear it. We can't believe what's happening. Jesus has just made his third and final prediction of the Passion. If you remember last week, we have seen Jesus embody kingdom greatness, he is the ultimate in kingdom greatness. All other great ones within the kingdom are merely following his lead. And we see that in his presentation of what is to come. He goes willingly to the cross. He goes knowingly to the cross. And he goes expectantly to the cross knowing that resurrection will follow. He is the ultimate in kingdom greatness. And right on the heels of of that instruction, pulled off to the side of the trail to communicate specifically to the 12 disciples, this happens. And we're faced with the reality that kingdom greatness is not status. It's not wrapped up in position, but rather in responsible service. The mother of the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, came to him, verse 20 says, with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. Now, kneeling before him and asking for something is interaction like interacting with a king. So this is not worship, this is homage. She kneels down before Jesus and she says, may I request something of you? It doesn't mean that Matthew didn't know what she asked and he didn't find out until Jesus asked her to clarify. She knelt down to say, can I ask you something? Her boys are with her. This is this is a little bit difficult for us to imagine, I guess, at some level. There are her two sons. We don't know if she's saying, come with me or according to other gospel records, if they're saying, mom, ask him. Ask him it's potential that she was Jesus aunt and that James and John were actually his cousins. And if that were the case, there would be all the more influence with her coming to him. Either way, she and the boys come to ask a specific question. And Jesus grants her the opportunity to ask a question. He says to her in verse 21, what do you want? And now she says her mind. Say that is declare decree that my two boys will be at your right hand and your left hand when you enter into your kingdom. So Jesus has just finished predicting what is to come in the passion when he gets to Calvary, when he goes to Jerusalem, what will take place. He goes there willingly. He goes there knowingly. He's self-sacrificing. He knows that he's giving himself for death. He communicates it to the disciples. And the first thing that happens is James and John fall back. Into what they know best. The competing set of information. The facts that they've lived with. The culture in which they live. Tells them that greatness is not represented. In sacrifice and service. It's represented in status. Position and power. And therefore mama goes to Jesus. And says can we make sure that these two guys. One gets on your right hand. And one gets on your left hand. Those are seats of honor and privilege. Those are unique places. Within the kingship. Of Jesus. And she represents the blindness that represents her sons. Who could not see that Jesus' kingdom was not a political overthrow to happen in Jerusalem. This is very short-sighted. And obviously very culturally informed. Now notice Jesus' answer. Shocking answer from Jesus. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't laugh at them. He doesn't scorn them. He asks a question as is so often his way. He highlights the heart condition by asking a question. And the question the question goes right to the centerpiece of the matter. You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the, the cup that I am to drink? Now the question that he asks is directly connected to what he's just predicted. Jesus has just communicated about the cup that he is to drink. The cup in the Old Testament represents judgment or suffering from God. And Jesus is about to receive both. He's about to receive the judgment for all who would believe upon himself at the cross. And he's about to experience suffering like none of us will experience. And the cup was clearly known amongst them with this Old Testament connotation. So Jesus says, you have no concept of what you're asking. And obviously the table has turned now. He's not speaking to the mother of James and John. He's speaking to James and John. It's as if he's looking right over top of her at them. And saying, you don't know what you're asking. And we know that because they're the ones that answer him. Are you willing to take my cup? Represented in verses 17 through 19. And their immediate immediate response in verse number 22, they said to him, we are able. This represents the, the naivete on the part of James and John. Jesus has just predicted that he will go, he will suffer, he will be crucified at the hands of the Romans. And they are, they are quick with their hands up in the air. Count us in, we can take the cup. Do you remember what happens when Jesus is betrayed by Judas? I, I mean, we, we, we like to talk about Peter. He was by the fire. He could see the eyes of Jesus. He was close enough to see the gaze of Jesus. And Peter, to his shame and to our benefit, because of the, the the fruit of what took place in his repentance, denies Jesus three times. What we don't remember is where were the other ten? Judas, of course, was off of the scene. Peter was at the fire. Where were the other ten? Where were James and John? They had all scattered and run. But here... With blindness over their eyes, with pride, with cultural awareness and their cultural information, they say, Sure, we're up for the cup. Whatever it takes, just get us in those seats. We want to be, we want to be the power people of the kingdom. We want status. We want position. We want titles. We want, we want power. The disciples were informed by what they perceived was greatness. And what they perceived was greatness was the privilege of position. It was a title. It was a a, a recognizable place within the community. This was to them greatness. And no doubt that's the same for us. We would look at the greatest people of our culture are the most identifiable people of our culture. Our culture is infatuated with what, what they presume is greatness interviews are endless magazine articles are unending talking to the great people about how they became great people all for the great people's glory the implication is the same for us today as it was for these two men and their mom on this day they have asked based upon what their culture would tell them is an appropriate an appropriate desire And Jesus has responded with a question that points to the error of their ways. Greatness within his kingdom will be something other than all greatness within the world system in which they live and in which we live. You understand that? Greatness within the kingdom is counter-cultural. It is contra-societal norms. It goes against what we normally think is the measure of greatness. We would measure greatness by status, power, authority, resources, bloodlines. But the disciples are about to find out that Jesus and his kingdom represents an entirely different measuring system for greatness. Because kingdom greatness is measured in service, not status. And principle number one, we find that kingdom greatness is not status. Jesus goes on to say, you will drink my cup. You will suffer. And they would. James would be martyred. History would tell us he was beheaded. John would be exiled to the Isle of Patmos where he would live in isolation until he died. Where he would receive the great revelation that we have as the conclusion of our canon. They would in fact follow in their Lord's suffering. But Jesus goes on to say in verse number 23, but to sit at my right hand and at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. Jesus here speaking with his full humanity present upon him. He has not been risen to his exaltation. He is not yet at the right hand of the father here. He's ministering to the disciples and he says, this is not mine to give. This is my father's call for those who are the greatest within the kingdom. We are not shocked by the transition, the hinge verse within this paragraph, and it's verse number 24. This is the not shocking part. When the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. I can only imagine what the other disciples were doing while these two guys had their mom kneeling down, asking Jesus to be at the right hand and at the left hand. You can almost see them. You can see Matthew looking over at Peter and rolling his eyes going, you see this? You see what she's doing? Can you believe these guys? But I think what is going on here is not so much indignance at the pride and the arrogance of the request. But in the fact that they've been beaten to the punch. That these guys got in good. They got there early. They got the, they got the first crack at this. They got their mom involved. Like, whoa, that's his aunt. How did they think of this? They're indignant. I can't believe it. Jesus immediately seizes the opportunity to teach the second principle. Kingdom greatness is not about status, but kingdom greatness is slavery. The greatest within the kingdom are those who serve most. Jesus gathers the disciples, verse number 25. He called them to him and said, and now he confronts where they are in error the way they've been thinking, the culture that has informed them. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Jesus here presents the second truth that the kingdom greatness is measured by service. It's slavery. The words that Jesus uses are important in verse number 25. He says that you know the rulers of the Gentiles. And the ESV translates as Lord it over them. That is Gentile peoples. I think that's probably over translated. Um, the idea here is parallel with the second part of that sentence. And their great ones exercise authority over them. The word for Lord it over them. Brings the connotation to us of, of wielding or misusing authority. That's, that's not what Jesus intends. He says to them. That the the rulers of the Gentiles, the great ones within the Gentile peoples, are the ones who exercise lordship and exercise authority. So, as it were, he speaks to them from, from the ground level. So, the common man, if asked within a Gentile nation, who are the great ones among you, would answer, they're the ones with the most lordship and the most authority. They're the ones who have exercised the authority over us. That's the measuring stick of greatness within the Gentile nations. They were well acquainted. Because they were under the rulership of Rome. The Roman government was certainly not one. That we would uh, cheerfully embrace. Or be excited for its arrival. On this side of the world. The Roman government was, was run by an emperor. It was an absolute authority. There was an exercise of authority. And there was an exercise of lordship. That was unmatched in its time. And Jesus says, this is what you know about. This is what is familiar to you. Brothers and sisters, I would, I would encourage you this morning, and I, I would encourage us as a church family, to recognize that there are, there are greatness standards that we know about within our culture. And if we are not careful, they will go untouched. They will go unconfronted. There will be no comparison given to what Jesus is about to say next. What Jesus does is he confronts the indignant ten and the arrogant two. Is he presents wisdom from heaven to them about his kingdom, which is counter cultural. It will always fly in the face of what is normative, what is known amongst us as human beings. So they knew that the Gentiles exercised lordship. That's what marked their greatness, and they exercised authority. That's what marked their greatness. And verse number twenty six. Brings it all home for the disciples and for us this morning. This will not be the case among you. It will not be around status. It will not be about position. It will not be about the privilege of leadership. This will not be the way greatness is measured within the kingdom. This will not be the, 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 the scale that is used within the kingdom to establish who is great. So James and John wanted the position because to them, that was the way we could identify who is great and who's not great. If we get the position, then we're great. If we don't, ah, it's kind of touch and go. The ten are indignant. How dare they do this? How dare they beat me to do this? Jesus says, you're all, you're all misinformed. The set of facts around which you're operating and, and, and upon which you are, uh, you are acting, at least James and John and their mom, are incorrect if held against the standard of the kingdom. It shall not be so among you. There is a definable difference in the character of greatness within the kingdom. So let's just get very real. Let's bring this right down as one of our seminary professors would say. Let's put the cookies on the bottom shelf. This is real life. How we measure who is great within our local assembly is is definably different than how our culture defines greatness outside of our local assembly so we are the people of god gathered together under the headship of jesus christ served by the shepherding ministry of pastors ordained by christ for that role served in leadership by those who are deacons caring for us and our physical needs in ways that we can follow and we exist as sheep together within a fold serving one another living out the one another's caring for each other and so greatness must be defined within that reality. And often, I believe, we're tempted to bring greatness from our culture and transplant it into our local assembly. No different than the disciples who asked through their mom to be at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus. Now, notice what distinguishes the kingdom greatness from the worldly greatness. Verse number 26, second part of the verse says, but in contrast, here's what will be different for you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Jesus uses two terms to describe the character of the great ones within the kingdom. The ESV translates the first one servant. The word is diakonos. You know that we we often we don't often use Greek words here unless they're meaningful for us in some special way. Diakonos is a word that sounds like a word that we just used a few minutes ago. It's the word we use for deacon. It means minister. It, it's translated here servant and that's, that's, that's appropriate because it, it divides away from us the mentality. This is some special role. Greatness within the kingdom will be those who are ministers Within the kingdom. It will be those who are serving within the kingdom, giving their lives within the kingdom. And the second term in verse number 27 whoever would be first among you must be your slave. This is doulos, the word for bond slave and slave is the right word. I think servant somehow within our Christian lingo has become less than slave. Jesus says the top of the food chain are the slaves, the greatest within the kingdom are the ministers, the servants of the kingdom. This is a definable difference in the character of greatness within the kingdom. So within our local church, as we live life together, as we begin to develop and grow within the gospel, we start to love and care for one another appropriately. We are prone then to be deceived into thinking that the normal, if you will, cultural way of assessing greatness should be utilized within the body. So the body's greatest people should be those who have the most status, the most clout, the most power, the most resource. That is the measuring stick of greatness. It cannot be so. It's not so among us. Within the kingdom of heaven, greatness is seen with entirely different standards. So kingdom greatness is not status. And kingdom greatness is slavery. Kingdom greatness is measured in service not with position. Let me clarify this hopefully a little bit more. This week at camp, we were in a Q&A session. Kurt and I were in a Q&A session from 4 o'clock till 5.20 in the, in the evening. We were with the students who wanted to be there. It was an open forum. They can come and ask anything they'd like to ask. And one of the students asked, how can I start to become a leader within my student ministries? I think he's going to be a sophomore. He's an up-and-coming, believing young man. How can I be becoming a leader within our student ministries? And I I was so encouraged by Kurt's response because we came to this paragraph. And Kurt reminded this young man that leadership is responsibility, not the privilege. It is the work, not the position. It is influence and slavery on behalf of others, not domination of others he was curious as to how to exercise and to work toward leadership without being counted as arrogant and proud within his youth group. I tried to encourage him by telling him not to be arrogant and proud so that that's not true within his youth group. But secondly, to remember this passage where Jesus says kingdom greatness is measured in totally countercultural, not normal ways of measuring greatness. Thirdly, we find this final principle that kingdom greatness is applicable. Kingdom greatness is not measured by status or position, and it is measured by service and slavery. And with that comes the very real implication of how do we know what that looks like? Is this applicable? Do we have something to look at that can say, "Okay, that's what it's supposed to be in the end? For many of you, this is how you look at direction manuals. Pastor David and I are light years apart from each other when it comes to manuals about putting things together or operating different devices. He actually doesn't turn on a device until he's read the entire manual. I think that is worthy of mockery. He doesn't begin to put anything together until he's read all of the steps of how to put it together. I believe that is worthy of mockery. Now, I also believe that that leads me to twice as long on most of my chores as for him. And half of the knowledge of what my device does than than for him. Okay, I understand that. Those are are the risks I'm willing to take. Those are the costs I'm willing to pay. Thank you. Thank you. Truth is in these words. I just got... uh, For my 30th birthday, my beloved gave me a brand new gas grill. I mean, there's nothing more. Well, there is something probably more manly than that. But but in my world, this is an exciting part of my life. I'm going to use it today. Actually, some tri tip will be grilled. That's not fair to you or to me to do that at noon to tell you about that. Got the grill. What did I want to do first when I got the grill packet out? I just wanted to see what it was supposed to look like at the end. If I could get the general gist of what it's supposed to look like at the end, I'm pretty sure I'll get these pieces together. And trust me, there's all kinds of arrogance and pride wrapped up in this. But I think I can get this thing to look the way it's supposed to look. So when it comes to kingdom greatness, here we are faced with a paradox of the kingdom. First, last, last, first. Great ones are servants. First ones are slaves. Uh, we're we're almost faced with the dilemma of now, what does this look like? How do I apply this to life? Is there some standard or measuring stick that I can say, oh, that's the picture. Okay, that's what it's supposed to look like. Yes, there is. And we find that that standard in verse number 28. Notice what we find in verse number 28 and leading us through to the end of this chapter. Even as the son of man is came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Do you notice this? If if we want to look at the picture of what what the end goal is, what are we looking at to say, how does this greatness pan out? What does this look like in real life? Here it is. It's him. It's Jesus. He's the standard. He's the picture. He's the culmination. He's the ultimate greatness within the kingdom. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, There is no one with more authority. There is no one with more rights. There's no one with more privilege. And yet his greatness within the kingdom is not wrapped up in his privilege, but in his sacrifice, in his service and slavery to the cause of his father and to the benefit of his children. Those of us who have been brought near through his cross. Notice how Jesus describes the son of man. He's talking about himself and he says, even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. And here is the expression of that service in its fullest and to give his life a ransom for many. It's almost as if Jesus is looking at these two individuals and their mom and looking at these 10 indignant disciples. And he's saying, you missed it. The standard is what I predicted is coming. The standard is my giving of my life, a ransom, a payment. For many, one sacrifice, many receive grace. One sacrifice, many have their full ransom paid. God brings to himself through this ransom payment at the cross. Many sons and daughters. This is the application. Kingdom greatness is not status. It is service and it is applicable because there is a standard. His name is Jesus. Jesus offers his life. As a down payment for the removal of sinners from enslavement to sin. To gather to himself a people for his own name's sake. It would be appropriate for us to ask ourselves, how would Jesus serve in this scenario? In just a few minutes, we're going to do what we always do on the weeks that we don't remember the Lord's sacrifice. We're going to talk about our membership and about caring for one another here. Those who have needs, those who are celebrating exciting times of blessing and joy. And it would be appropriate, appropriate for us as those who have now established standard before us for kingdom greatness to ask, how would Jesus serve in this scenario? What would it look like to give myself away For this situation. For these people. What would it look like to actually sacrifice myself. For the benefit of another. This is appropriate for us. This is Christian. This is normal. This is kingdom. This is counter. What is usually the set of information that we work on. Or the set of facts that we operate upon. And this is kingdom thinking for us. Jesus himself stands as the standard for application And then he models for us the compassion that accompanies his selfless, serving life. There is no part of his life that was spent getting served. It was all for the sake of serving others as a ransom for their freedom. Kingdom greatness is measured in service, not status. So let's look at this final paragraph, see the story, and we'll be finished. So as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there are two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Seems that this is kind of tacked on to the end of this chapter. And unless we follow the theme through this chapter, beginning back at the end of chapter 19 and see Jesus explaining the kingdom paradox and then seeing him illustrating it in his own profession or his own prediction, rather, of the passion and then highlighted in the failure to understand on the part of the disciples receiving instruction from him. We now see this as an application of the service and the greatness of the kingdom represented in our savior. Jesus is on the road out of Jericho. There's debate about what exactly is going on here. There are two cities of Jericho at this point. This is probably not the famous city of Jericho that you're familiar with. This is a newer city of Jericho. There were two in the time of Christ. We're not sure if the old one was even inhabited at this point. Potentially, Jesus is moving from one Jericho to another Jericho. He could be both coming in and going out at the same time by leaving the one and approaching the other. In any case, there are two blind men who know that he's coming their way. And they set up strategic points where they will be able to intersect Jesus. The coming Messiah who is present in their midst. This is the moment, no doubt, they have been waiting for. There have been years of hearing about his miracles. They know that blind people have been made to see and they're blind. And so however it was that they got to where they got to, they got there. And as the crowd and the mass with Jesus is moving through, they are screaming at the top of their lungs because they've set up to try to be close. And they're screaming out for mercy. But they're calling Jesus by unique name. Do You notice the name that they're calling him by? They're calling him the son of David. What is wrapped up in the term son of David? This is important for our Bible study. These men are are with that term, with that title. They are identifying their confidence that Jesus is, in fact, the promised seed from second Samuel, chapter seven, from first Chronicles, chapter 17, that Jesus is the the seed that would come and establish the throne of David forever. That would restore the nation of Israel, the Messiah, the coming promised one who would bring to fullness God's promises His covenant promises to the nation of Israel. The crowd responds with normal response. The crowd is operating on normal thinking and normal facts. Jesus is a very important individual. He's here in our town. We're in the crowd around him. We're on the inside of this group. And somebody is making a racket over there. Somebody's distracting us from our time with Jesus. So whoever's over there, just tell them to be quiet. You can almost see the inner circle looking out. Maybe the disciples looking out a few rows back of the people and saying, can we get that take, turn that down? Can we get that taken care of? Somebody in the back goes, I got it, I got it, I got it. And they go to somebody else and say, tell them to be quiet. And Somebody close to the blind man, desperate in every way, say, please, please be quiet. We're trying to listen here. Well, the blind men have nothing of it. (laughs) They know nothing of that. In fact, you can almost feel this. Raising a toddler at this point in our lives, we know what this is like at times. Trying to get it quieter actually makes it louder. Um, Trying to say, please, you need to be quiet. You're crying and you're you're getting out of control only makes the situation seemingly more out of control. These men are told to be quiet and they do the opposite. The crowd rebukes them, telling them to be silent. Verse 31, but they cried all the more. They're they're more desperate. They know that they're trying to be suppressed and they scream out. And here is the greatest of the kingdom living kingdom greatness stopping. Jesus said to them. Calls them over and says, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus hears them calling. He pauses because he is not here for his own agenda. His greatness is not in position. It's in service. It's not in the privilege. It's in the responsibility. It's not in status. It's in slavery to the father's will. He pauses in the middle of a busy life, if you will. He pauses in the middle of a busy day. He's got thousands of people around him. They all want him to do something. And he hears these two men. Calls them over. asks them what they would have him do. And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. Notice verse 34. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. He served them. And immediately... They recovered their sight and they followed him. Jesus, on his way to give his life as a ransom for the elect, is giving his life for the desperate all along the way. This is not a moment in time. This is not a Sunday adventure. We don't jump into kingdom greatness and live for service and not for status on Sundays. This is our life, brothers and sisters. This is the one we follow. We've been saved to this. This applies to your business, this applies to your home, this applies to your sports team, this applies to your friends group that gets together at Starbucks, this applies to everything. Christ never turned off Messiah and became regular guy. There is no regular guy, this is him. He gives his life a ransom for all and he gives his life for all along the way to provide that ransom. Kingdom greatness is not status. It's not power. It's not rank or privilege. It's responsibility, service and slavery. And it is applicable by looking at Jesus Christ. In pity, he touched their eyes. They're healed immediately and they follow him. So will you apply your knowledge about kingdom greatness or will you compartmentalize your life? Will I compartmentalize my life to where we say, "Okay, in this aspect, I get it. And and I want to serve here and services is greatness and and being unknown is greatness and living with this counterintuitive and countercultural way of thinking that that's that's profitable in this little sphere. But over here, over here, I mean, I don't I don't think I don't think Jesus is talking about my whole life, right? I mean, he's he's not saying this is this is the way of the kingdom like universally, right? That's exactly what he's saying. So we must ask ourselves, will the standard of Jesus and his reckless, tireless and unstoppable service of others be our model here? Is this going to be what we're known for because we're kingdom people following the standard of the king? Will greatness be measured here by service and selflessness, by faithfulness in the service of others? By giving away our lives for the benefit of others, will we follow his lead or will we operate upon the set of facts that are most familiar to us the facts that are most familiar to us also appeal to our flesh most because they exist within the fallen world system in which we live we have new hearts we have new natures provided by Christ we have a new lord and master we've surrendered our life to him and now we must apply kingdom greatness principles to every facet of our lives so as always when we finish studying god's word we need to ask ourselves how does this apply to me specifically let me ask you two questions you can write these down these are for your consideration for your grace group time this week together with god's people whatever the case in your small groups today around the dinner table where do you face the most pressure to allow the culture to define greatness where is it in your life that you face the most pressure to allow what the world says is greatness to be the information upon which you operate. Okay? There are different, different areas in, in, in everyone's life where this is pressing in on them more than in other areas. Is it in your home? Do you find that the, the old standard, the cultural way of greatness being authority, dominance, power, title... Being the means of establishing greatness within your home? Or is the kingdom standard the means of establishing greatness? There is no doubt title and authority within the home and within the church and within any component of our lives. Civil, all of the experience of our life involves authority. But will greatness be measured based upon our culture standard or upon the standard of our king? How about at work? Employees. How will greatness be measured in your life at work? Employers, how will greatness be measured in your companies? Within your schooling students, how will you measure greatness? Will you be sucked into your culture, which tells you that the one who is most aggressive for their own glory, who weasels their own agenda at every turn is the greatest of them? Or will you be consumed by your Christ? So that you are serving and selflessly giving yourself for the benefit of others. Athletics. There's nothing in my own life that that is more confrontational with these principles than my athletic life. Most of my athletic life was lived before I knew Christ. I had no concept and no direction to know how to apply these standards of kingdom greatness within my athletic realm when everything around me was telling me the opposite. It was all about status. It was all about cloud. It was all about being able to dominate. It wasn't about service. It wasn't selfless. It wasn't for the sake of others and the benefit of others that I existed on my team. How about the arts? How about our church? And then secondly, by way of application, number one, where do you face the most pressure to allow the culture to define greatness? And number two, how will you mute the voice of culture and crank up the volume of Jesus' clear instruction? So if the pursuit of, 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 of our lives is the renewal of our minds by the word of God, how will we increase the volume of what God says and what Christ exemplifies and speaks to us about greatness and mute the competitive voices that are screaming doctrine to us from the fallen, wicked world in which we live, which appeals directly to our flesh and which often we're preaching to ourselves with our flesh. We must apply the gospel. We must live in light of the gospel daily if we are to mute the voice of culture and crank up the volume of Jesus' clear instruction and application of kingdom greatness. Okay, Kingdom greatness is measured by service, not by status. Father, we commit ourselves to this standard. As a church family, we recognize our failure often. To serve one another. And we also recognize the joy we've experienced when we have served one another. The smile of your face as we give our lives away for the sake and the benefits of others. Within the gospel community. Is a living testimony to the world around us. That our love for one another comes from something otherworldly. So we ask that you would work in us. That these standards of greatness Setting aside status and pomp and circumstance and clout and power. To pursue selflessness, service and the benefit of others might become our battle cry, both as individuals and as a church family. We commit ourselves to this, asking that you would convict and shape and mold us through your spirit's presence and power, using the tool, the sword That both pierces and heals our souls. So we commit ourselves to you together. In the name of Christ. Amen.